Hey, this is Russ from The Wrestling Room and uh, just finalizing preparation for teaching number 17. So I'm um, very excited about that teaching. I uh, can't wait to bring that to you. Before I do, here are a couple of announcements. Number one, many of you have asked about a podcast and if I could take my teaching and put it into podcast form. Well, I've done that and now you can access that on Spotify or Google Podcasts, but just enter The Wrestling Room in the search bar and it should bring it right up. And all of the teaching, I've just ripped the audio right off of the video teaching and it's right there. So it's exactly the same teaching as is on the YouTube channel. So that's the first thing. It gives you the opportunity to go on a walk, listen, go on a jog and listen, uh, listen in your car, wherever. It's, it's much more convenient, I would imagine. So Number two, some of you have asked about my teaching notes. I know there's a lot of content in my teaching. It is not for the faint of heart or just the flyby Bible student. So happy to give you teaching notes if you'd like them. I'll attach both the link for the podcast and my email address at the bottom here underneath the teaching. And you can uh, email me if you want those teaching notes. So happy to do it. Okay, I think that's that's about it. So I will see you on teaching number 17. Lord bless you guys. Welcome back to the wrestling room and welcome back to our dive into the book of Acts. This is actually week number eight, can you believe it, of introduction to the book of Acts. I have learned so much. I feel like I've been back to Bible college studying to begin teaching the book of Acts. So next week we're going to dive in and start our journey right through the book of Acts and uh but this week, this week, buckle up. I know I've told you that before, double buckle today. There's a lot of content today. There are things that I have been able to put together, dots I've been able to connect in the studying for this message that I'm very excited to share with you. And um, so get ready. Now, before we start, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull something on you that uh, I hated when I was in school as a kid, and that is a pop quiz. I'm gonna give you a five question pop quiz to start our teaching today, and I'll give you one hint. The answer is the same for all five questions, okay? That's, that's your clue. Here we go, question number one. What begins almost microscopically small, yet experiences abnormal, aberrant, and even supernatural growth. Okay, question number one. Number two, what is so valuable, so precious that one is joyfully willing to sell all that he or she has to acquire it? Question number two. Question number three, what has experienced ongoing infestation by infiltrators, by saboteurs, and by counterfeits? Ongoing infestation by infiltrators, saboteurs, and counterfeiters. Question number three. Question number four. What will eventually be sifted to separate the good from the bad, the clean from the unclean? And finally, question number five. What will continue to expand and enlarge, to grow and develop until it fills the whole earth? You got your answer, lock it in. Here, it go. Here you go, here's the answer. The answer is the kingdom of heaven as taught by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven. 
And as we think about their, our teaching over the last eight weeks, Jesus camped out with the disciples for 40 days. We see in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, for 40 days, he held a 40-day boot camp, a 40-day intensive to prepare these future leaders to lead the church correctly, to lead them with the correct mindset, the correct vision, to make sure that they were aligned with the heart and the mind of Jesus. He taught them three things. He had to make sure they were crystal clear on three things before he could entrust leadership of the brand new baby church to them. Number one, they had to be clear on who he was. Who he was. He made it crystal clear that he was, first of all, alive from the dead, that he had conquered death, but that not only that he had, had he conquered death, but it proved without a shadow of doubt that he was not just another man. He was the God-man. He was God come in flesh. Jesus was God, conqueror of death, who is alive. They had to be clear about that. Number two, they had to be clear that suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes victory and overcoming, that the, the process of salvation started with the lamb who would die for the sin of the world and conquer the enemy of sin before he could be the lion who reigns as king. Jesus had to get that order corrected in their mind. They were looking for a king. They needed a sacrifice. They were looking for the Romans to be conquered. They needed their own sin to be dealt with. And that's true of you and me. So that's the second thing they had to be clear on. Their message was not conquer Rome. It was repent of sin. Number three, he taught them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms used interchangeably. And we saw in the last teaching that that was Jesus' singular theme, his topic that he spoke about over and over. It was the drum he beat from the beginning of his ministry to right before he disappeared into the clouds. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It was his sine qua non, his main ingredient. This week, I want to talk about Jesus' singular message, which was very similar to his singular theme, and that was the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, Matthew 4.23 sums up the agenda of Jesus' ministry. Let me read it to you. Matthew 4.23 says this, Jesus was going about in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and here it is, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That was his singular message. That was his singular topic, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the goal for this teaching is to define clearly for you what is the gospel. Now, if you're like me and you've grown up in church, you've spent lots of time inside of church, you've heard the word gospel over and over. And in my opinion, it's been used and abused and overused uh, and it's become a spiritual buzzword, something you throw around if you want to sound spiritual. Uh, but when it's spoken of, you kind of switch off your brain and, all right, the gospel, heard it a million times. But it's a powerful word. It is the story of history, people. The gospel is the story of history being played out in the theater of planet Earth. It is the ongoing story of a king setting up a kingdom unlike any other. And, then, and in the last three weeks, I have grown to love this word and understand it more fully. And I want to share that with you. But to do that, we've got to go back to Isaiah 52 to give you the context. 
where was this word birthed? Out of what was it birthed? So go back to Isaiah 52, verses 7 and 8. And while you turn there, I'm going to give you a little background because there's a powerful scene playing out just outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the city walls. Now, here's the, here's the backdrop. The people of Israel have clung to their idols. They've clung to their sinful ways despite the pleadings of the prophets. The prophets have come to them in, in the name of God over and over as God's voice, as God's heart pleading with them, turn from your sin. They wouldn't have it. They loved their sin. So God allowed Babylon to invade Jerusalem in 605 BC and take the majority of the Jewish people into Babylon and into captivity. The city was sacked. The beautiful temple of Solomon was destroyed. And there was just a remnant of people there living amongst the rubble, eking out an existence, living in poverty, and asking what in the world just happened. What just happened? Because they knew the prophecies. They knew that God was going to reign from Jerusalem. He was going to bring peace. He was going to bring justice. So they're asking themselves, has God abandoned us? Are the gods of Babylon more powerful all of a sudden than the God of Israel? What happened? All seemed lost, but in the midst of all this questioning, on this particular day, the watchmen are sitting on the burned out broken walls. They're scanning the horizon for invaders or approaching enemies, and they see movement. Far out on the hills, there is someone running towards the city. He's raising his arms in the shape of a V for victory, and he's pumping his fist. They can tell he's excited. They can tell that he's overjoyed, in fact. And as he approaches the city wall, he's shouting, Good news! Good news! And Isaiah 52, 7 summarizes it this way, and no doubt you've heard this verse, but this is the context of the gospel. The messenger says this, or the writer of Isaiah says this, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. That was the message. Good news, your God reigns. And the message was clear. It was simple. Despite Jerusalem's destruction, the God of Israel still reigns, as king. And he is coming to restore Jerusalem, take his throne, his rightful place, and he will bring peace. And in verse 8, as the watchmen hear and receive this message, it says they lift up their voices and they shout joyfully together. Because of this good news, the depressed mindset, the depressed hearts of that city become a celebration, a party, God still reigns. Good news. Now fast forward to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and we have the job description of the coming king. It's revealed, spoken prophetically by the king himself prior to his coming. So turn to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And the king prophetically is declaring these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring Good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord 
and the day of vengeance of our God. What a gripping passage. What a king. Now I want you to notice two time phrases that were spoken of by the king. Number one, the favorable year of the Lord, otherwise known as the acceptable year of the Lord. And the second is the day of vengeance of our God. One would follow the other. The day of vengeance of our God would follow the favorable year of the Lord. This is very important. Keep it in mind. Now, fast forward again to the New Testament where this phrase good news resurfaces in the word gospel. Here's the kicker. When you hear the declaration of good news, when you hear the word gospel, it's always an announcement of a coming king who is coming to reign of a king who is coming to reign. So just as on a golf course, when you hear four, you know a golf ball is coming and you better duck. When you hear good news, you know it's the declaration of a coming king. Get ready, get ready. So when Jesus appeared on the scene, he came in the role of the messenger of Isaiah 52. He began declaring the identical message, good news. And people knew what, is he, what he was declaring. They knew that, that he was saying a king is coming. Freedom is coming. Change is coming. Winter is turning to summer. <laughs> now the difference between the messenger of Isaiah and Jesus was that the messenger of Isaiah was announcing a future coming king. He was looking into the future. But when Jesus began to announce the good news that the, mes the messenger in this case was the king. And the kingdom was arriving with the messenger. It was here. And so in Luke chapter 4, we have a powerful scene involving Jesus as he steps out from behind the curtain and declares his brand new identity. Go with me to Luke chapter 4. I want to walk you through this as we prepare to even dig deeper into what this word gospel means. It's very, very colorful. So Luke chapter four, go there with me. Let me give us some background to this. Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness, feeding himself on the word of God, praying, preparing himself for ministry. And as a finale, the fireworks go off when he and Satan himself engage head on and Jesus gives Satan a beating announcing to Satan, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> there's a new sheriff in town. So Jesus comes out of that 40 days. The Bible says he's filled with the Spirit. So pick up with me, Luke 4, uh, 4 verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. We will get a chance, brothers and sisters, during the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, to sit under the teaching of Jesus. But here's a foreshadow. It is gripping. He is a master teacher. The people came from all over the place to listen to Jesus. His words were with authority. He taught with clarity. He didn't put people to sleep like the religious leaders did. Jesus was renowned for his ability to captivate people with his teaching. I can't wait to sit 
under the teaching of Jesus. No wonder Mary didn't want to be in the kitchen chopping up veggies with Martha. She wanted to be sitting in where the real show was at the feet of Jesus. Makes sense. So, verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and, he, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. Ah, Isaiah the prophet rings a bell. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And as he began to read, brothers and sisters, this was a reading unlike any other reading in the history of the world. Here's what he read, and you'll recognize it right out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed emphasis me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me. Jesus is declaring, I'm the king of Isaiah 61. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. What a mission. Oh, we get to follow this king. Can you understand this? This is powerful stuff. What a mission. Recovery of sight, setting free who are oppressed, releasing captives, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord. Hold that thought. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the people were on him. They're wondering, okay, you've just read one of the most powerful passages. We know this passage. We know what it's saying. What have you got to tell us? Is there any update? Is there any news? Is have you heard about the coming of the king? We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And Jesus sits down and then he concludes with this statement. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you can just imagine the people. They weren't expecting to hear that. And they're trying to process this. What are you saying, Jesus? Carpenter? Son of the carpenter, what are you saying? And their minds are just going nuts. What was Jesus saying? I'm the king. I'm here. The kingdom of God is here. The favorable day of the Lord that you've been waiting for, it's here. I've inaugurated it. Jesus had stepped out from behind the, car uh, the, the curtain of the carpenter's shop and he had declared his true identity. He had been a king all along, working as a carpenter. He had been royalty in the form of a common man with tools in his hands, building. But now he declared, I'm the king. I've ushered in the favorable day of the Lord. Wow, what a scene. Would have loved to have been there, especially knowing what we know now. We'll get to see it, I'm sure, one day on a big screen in heaven. <laughs> but let me, let me keep going. We haven't begun to scratch the surface yet, people, so hang with me. To really absorb the impact of what Jesus was saying, you've got to understand what the favorable year of the Lord is. What is the favorable year of the Lord? What does it have to do with the good news? Now, favorable means this, and it's important that we understand this. Favorable means accepted approved. It means to take hold of or grasp with the hand to grant access. In other words, I'm opening the door. I'm not keeping the door closed. Not to refuse, to embrace, and even make part of your family. 
to bring into your family, as it were, to adopt into the family. That's what this word favorable means. It has all of that connotation. Summarize. Here's what Jesus was saying. I'm inaugurating a year, which is a time period, not a literal year, a time period of approval, of acceptance, and of access where you are welcomed with a warm handshake and a hug and made part of the family. That's what Jesus was saying. So I want to spend the rest of the time that we have together expanding on this concept of the favorable year of the Lord. What is it? When is it? What happens during the favorable year of the Lord? Question number one, what is the favorable year of the Lord? Now, before I go into that, I want to build on this platform one of God's strongest identities in all of Scripture. He reveals himself as a liberator, a deliverer, a savior, one who sets people free from bondage. You will see God portraying himself this way all throughout Scripture. Take, for example, his introduction to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Here's what he says. God is speaking to Moses and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've given heed to their cry because of the taskmasters. For I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the, of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That, in its essence, is the gospel. God coming down to deliver out of the power of the Egyptians, Pharaoh being a type of Satan, to bring them up from that land, out of bondage, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Those two verses introducing himself to Moses, that is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the message of the whole of the Bible, right there. Go to uh, Exodus chapter 20, and God is introducing the Ten Commandments to the people. And here's, what he, here's how he introduces it. He says, I am the Lord your God, and how does he describe himself? Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God introduces the Ten Commandments, prefacing it with, I'm a liberator. I'm a deliverer. I've delivered you. I've liberated you. God is in the business of breaking people out of jail, not putting people in jail. The laws of God always liberate. Before he gives the Ten Commandments, he wants them to understand, my heart is for your freedom, not for your bondage. And so these Ten Commands are Ten Commandments to set you free, not to enslave you. Brothers and sisters, we've got to understand, the heart of our God is to set us free, not to put us in chains. His laws are always for our good, not to enslave us. So many of us has, have a misconstrued idea of who God is. We think he's the, the cosmic killjoy, the one who just wants to keep us sad and depressed all the time because of all the fun things he won't let us do. That's rubbish. That is a lie that the enemy has foisted on us. God is a liberator. We have to understand that. He is one who sets people free from bondage. That's what God does. Okay. So when Jesus announced the favorable year of the Lord, he was referring to the year of Jubilee. 
That was another term. Favorable year of the Lord was synonymous with Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, which was commanded by God, again, in Leviticus 25. Now, this would prove to be another magnificent demonstration of the incredible heart and character of God. Powerful. Now, let me give you some more background. God works in units of seven, in sevens. <laughs> They're everywhere. 337 times in Scripture, the number seven is mentioned. And he also highly honors the principle of Shabbat, or Sabbath, which means to cease and rest. God is a God of rest. He's a God of liberation, a God of freedom, and a God of rest. Oh, we're putting pieces together. So here are four examples of required Sabbaths that the people were required to observe. Number one, seven festivals. In Leviticus 23, he commands for the people of Israel to gather seven times and celebrate seven festivals or feasts each year. Four in the spring, three in the fall. They were to cease working and to assemble. And that alone is a teaching that will knock your Knock, just knock you to the ground. It's so powerful. Don't have time for that, even close. Number two is the Sabbath day. In Genesis 2, God introduces a pattern of six days of work, one day of rest, the Sabbath. Not that God needed the rest, we needed the rest. A time to refocus and to, to remember the, 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 the provision and the um, sustenance of God, to relish God is our provider. God is our sustainer. God as our source. He's the one, not all of our work, that supplies for us. And that seventh day was a time of reflection and a time of faith and a time of gratitude to God. And in Leviticus 23, God then gives the command to his people in, in the form of a command for six days of work, one day of pause. And up to that point, it had been Seven days a week, labor, slavery, that's all they'd known. So this was grace God was granting them. Number three, the Sabbath year. Not only the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. In Leviticus 25, God gives his laws concerning the sabbatical year. The seventh year of a seven-year cycle is what God is speaking of. They were to, For six years, they were to sow, to reap, and carry on as usual, but... On the seventh year, three things were to happen on the seventh year. Number one, no more sowing and reaping. There, there would be rest for the land. They'd give the land a rest. No working the land, no sowing, no harvesting. Number two, there would be resolution of all debt. Resolution of all debt. Meaning that anybody who had a debt of any kind would be forgiven of that debt. It would be considered paid in full, completely forgiven, freedom from all debt. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your mortgage being wiped out, your car payment wiped out, your student loans wiped out, your credit cards wiped out? No debt. You're debt free. One day you have a mountain of debt. The next day you have no debt. That was what happened on the seventh year. Debt was wiped out. People started brand new, completely clean slate. Amazing. Now, some would say, fantastic. We can just run up a bunch of debt. We can live on, on credit cards. Just live the high life because every seven years we get a free pass. 
Nope. Number three, not only was there rest for the land, resolution of debt, and release, uh, resolution of debt, there was release for all the slaves, or we would know them as indentured servants. Proverbs 22.7 says this, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave to the lender. That's why debt is such a pain in the backside, is you become a slave to the lender. And that's how it worked when you were in debt. It wasn't a free pass. You became an indentured servant. Meaning, what does that mean? Someone who, because of debt, is bound to work for another for a specific time until that debt's paid off. So often, if, if, if a homeowner, or if a father, if a landowner went into debt, he would have to leave the family and go to live with the one he was indebted to and serve that man as his slave, as his indentured servant, until the debt was paid off. But on the seventh year, regardless of what was remaining of the debt, they were free to go. Any debt that was remaining, canceled. So you have the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, but then you have the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee, oh, hang on, was even grander and greater than the Sabbath year. We would call it a supersized Sabbath or a mega Sabbath. It was the year of Jubilee every 50 years, twice a century. And it was the culmination of seven seven-year cycles. So after year 49 would come year 50, the year of Jubilee the supersized Sabbath, the mega Sabbath. Now, the year of Jubilee, friends, was the great reset for the whole nation. It commenced, it started, the first day of the year of Jubilee was on the Day of Atonement. Now, hang with me. The symbolism here, you're going to have to think. You're going to have to work with me. On the Day of Atonement, first day of the year of Jubilee. Now, what happened on the Day of Atonement? On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would put on white linen, perfectly clean, no spots or dirt. And then a bull was offered as a sacrifice to purify the high priest and his family. But then two male goats were given to the high priest, and one would be killed and offered as a substitutionary sin offering for the sin of the whole nation for the past year. That innocent goat would be killed, and the blood of that goat would serve as a sin offering, as a propitiation, the Bible says, as a satisfaction for the sin of the nation for one year, symbolically. Cleansing the nation of sin for one year. The second goat, Aaron would take, and he would place both hands on that goat. The goat was called the scapegoat. A scapegoat literally means one who is the object of irrational hostility or a fall guy. So the second goat was the scapegoat. He would not be killed. They were both male goats. Aaron would take, or the high priest would take and place both hands on its head, Confess over the goat the sins of the nation, symbolically transferring the sins of the nation into that goat. And then it would be led out into the wilderness, into a solitary place, the scripture says, and it would be released. 
Now, what is the message here? The message is this. The sin of the nation has been paid for, first goat, and forgotten, second goat. Sin paid for, sin forgotten, never to be brought up again. Woo! The day of atonement. Here's what atonement means. Atonement means to be reconciled, to be unified. To help you remember it, you can remember it this way. At one meant, at one meant, unified, atonement, at one meant, reconciled back to God. Sin paid for, sin forgotten, slate wiped clean because of a substitutionary sacrifice. Wow. Okay, let's keep going. So the year of Jubilee was initiated with a blast of a trumpet. The blast of a trumpet. That's where we get the word Jubilee. It literally means a ram's horn and came to mean a trumpet. So when they heard this blast of a trumpet, it was just like a starter's gun releasing runners from their starting blocks. When those ram's horns sounded all over the land, people everywhere were released from their chains of bondage. Debts paid. Release of all the slaves. The land was to rest for that year. But additionally, those three things were also true of the seventh year Sabbath. But additionally to those, there was restoration of the land back to its original owners. So the, not only was the land to rest, but there was to be restoration of land to its original owners. Now let me explain that. In the book of Exodus, each family was given a piece of the promised land as an inheritance, a gift from God. Although God ultimately let it be known the land belonged to him. But each family was given a piece of the promised land. If for any reason you lost your land, there was sickness, there were health issues, there was injury, um, you overstretched yourself in an investment and it went south and you had to sell your land to someone else to pay your debt. In the 50th year, all land reverted back to its original owner. Even if the second owner who had purchased it from you had created an empire on your land, on the 50th year, it all came back to you. Wow. And of course, the fifth thing that happened on the year of Jubilee. Number one, there was a rest for the land. Number two, resolution of all debt. All debts paid, all debts released, freedom from all debt. Number three, all slaves set free. Number four, the land came back to you. If you had lost your land, boom, you got it back. Fresh, clean slate. But number five, there was rejoicing and feasting. Of course there was. What an amazing time when everything was reset. The slate was wiped clean. If you were poor, you were now on the same level as the rich. No, everyone was even. Declaring at the end of the day, God is king. God is the owner of everything. We are all just even, and we are all exactly of the same value before the eyes of God. Nobody is greater than another. So, powerful stuff. How does this apply to Jesus? 
When Jesus stood up and read Isaiah 61 that day, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus was declaring Jubilee is here. The great reset, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. I am the Jubilee, Jesus was saying. I am the way of freedom. I am the way of rest. Jubilee is through me. The year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 pointed to Jesus. It was a picture of Jesus. Wow. Now, why is it significant to you and me? Well, when Jesus stood up and he looked out on the Jewish people, his people, in that synagogue, and he began to read this powerful passage, Isaiah 61, he wasn't just reading it for them. Jesus was looking supernaturally down through the annals of time, and he was looking at you. He was looking at me. He was reading to you. He was reading to me to a world full of people in bondage. And he would say to us, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to you. He has sent me to proclaim release of captivity to you. He has sent me to proclaim recovery of sight to you, <laughs> to set you free from your oppression, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord to you and to me. Ah, oh, why Why do we need the favorable year of the Lord? Because every last depressing detail of the book of Leviticus chapter 25 is true of you and it's true of me. All of us owe a debt we can't pay. Romans 3.23 said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody has what it takes to pay the debt. We're all bankrupt before God. All of us have been enslaved to sin. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And then in John 8, 34, he says this, or sorry, in James 14, it says this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. So a lot of people will say, well, I haven't done all those egregious things. Well, have you ever known you should do something and didn't do it. That's a sin of omission. The Bible calls that sin. So all of us have been enslaved to sin, either sins of commission or sins of cowardly omission or selfish omission. We're all slaves to sin. All of us have been separated from our spiritual family because the debt of sin has made us slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. All of us have lost our heavenly home, brothers and sisters. We've all lost our piece of land because of our sin. We've all lost it. But just like that first goat who on the Day of Atonement, the inauguration of the year of Jubilee, was killed to cover the sin of the nation of Israel, Jesus was offered as a sin offering for the whole world for you and for me to pay the price of our sin and to purchase our freedom. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 says. It says this, He, Jesus, has forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
Did you know that you have a certificate of debt consisting of degrees, decrees, I'm sorry, which means literally legal requirements. And one of the legal requirements of that decree says that if you sin, death is the penalty. The soul that sins, it shall die, is part of the legal decree. The wages of sin is death, part of the legal requirements. And you and I all had, if you're a follower of Jesus, you had a certificate of debt that was hostile to you. It was calling for your death sentence. But Jesus took it out of the way. What did he do? He stuffed it behind his back on the cross and his blood streamed down that decree and it washed away all your sin. There's nothing written on that list anymore. There's no evidence against you that is hostile to you. On the cross, the blood of Jesus erased our sin, cleaned the slate, destroyed that hostile document, that list of every ugly, selfish, perverted, deceitful thing that we've ever done, that we've ever not wanted anybody to know about, it was evaporated by the death, by the blood of Jesus. Evaporated. There was a teacher in Ireland who asked her class, is there anything that God can't do? And a little boy raised his hand. He said, yes, ma'am. God can't see our sin through the blood of Jesus. And that is true. The blood of Jesus has cleansed our sin. God can't see our sin. It's a total reset. The year of Jubilee, total reset because of Jesus, because of Jesus. And Jesus was also the second goat. <laughs> the father put his hands on the head of Jesus and transferred all the sin of the world into Jesus, past, present, and future, into Jesus on the cross. And then he turned his back on Jesus. 2 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross, the scapegoat. We should have been there. We should have been bearing our own sins. Jesus, the Father put his hands on the head of Jesus. The sin of the world was transferred. My sin, your sin, transferred into Jesus, and he died. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds... You were healed. That healing is another word for clean the slate. Reset everything. You were healed. Now what is the gospel of the kingdom, brothers and sisters? It's that Jesus is our jubilee. Everything that year of jubilee would offer and accomplish physically for a short time to the nation of Israel, Jesus offers it to you and me, spiritually and physically, for all of eternity. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom says that the doors of the kingdom of heaven are wide open because of Jesus, our jubilee. The gospel of the kingdom says we're living in a favorable year of the Lord. We can be favored. We can be accepted. We can be cleansed. We can be forgiven and then welcomed into God's eternal family and into his eternal kingdom. And finally, the gospel of the kingdom says the penalty for your sin debt can be wiped clean. The great reset is available if you will receive it. You can live in freedom and with great hope. That is the gospel of the kingdom. That is the gospel of the kingdom. And friends, that is good news. <laughs> that is good news. Come on. 
Now, I want to end with two questions. How do I access all the benefits of Jubilee that Jesus has to offer? How do I access all the benefits of Jubilee that's just too good to be true? How do I access it? Here's the answer. By coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. That simple. Friends, if you love your sin, if you love your slavery to sin, the year of Jubilee, the favorable day of the Lord, is not for you. <laughs> if you love your sin, this is not for you. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden under all this debt, under all the guilt, under all the shame, all the emptiness, all the confusion, all the depression, all the frustration, come unto me. I will give you rest. I hope you never, ever see rest again as just maybe taking a nap or taking a break or some nebulous thing. This rest is talking about the year of Jubilee. The rest from all debt. Jesus brings rest. He says, I will give you rest. I'll give you Shabbat, Sabbath. John 8, 36, 8, verse 36, Jesus says this, If the Son sets you free, Jubilee, you are free indeed because he's wiped clean. Great reset. Jesus offers freedom and blessing, brothers and sisters the blessings of the year of Jubilee, but we must come to him in faith and in repentance. We must abandon our sin. We must let go of the dead corpse of sin, of the slavery, of the chains, of the bondage. Say, I don't want that life anymore. I come to you, Jesus, and I receive freely your gift of Jubilee. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift can't be worked for. The debt can't be worked off. It's too great. The slavery is too oppressive. The loss is too extensive. When I embrace Jesus as Lord, as Master, in addition to the relationship that I gain with the King of the universe, I receive all the benefits of Jubilee. Hallelujah. Second question then. How long is this offer of Jubilee, of this great reset, available? When does it expire? Is there an expiration date? And the answer is this. It expires at the day of vengeance of our God. Two time periods, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God. Friends, this offer doesn't last forever. There is a time when the doors of the kingdom close and all debts are called. There's a day of judgment coming where you and me, where all the world will give an account to God for our lives, and he is a holy God. If your debts have been wiped clean because of Jubilee, because of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, the doors of the kingdom will swing wide for you. But if you have not received the Jubilee of Jesus, the doors of the kingdom will shut for you. And you will be responsible for your own debt, a debt that is impossible to pay. Judgment and justice will take their course and it won't end well for you. So there are two ways you can miss out on the year of Jubilee. Number one, 
the year, the favorable year of the Lord ends and you've not placed your faith in Jesus. And no one except the Father in heaven knows the moment when the favorable year of the Lord will end, when that time is up. The second way you can miss it is if you die during the favorable year of the Lord, not having put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And no one knows the day or the hour when their time is up on this earth. No one knows it. If you've not put your faith in Jesus in Jubilee, I implore you to do it now. The message of the good news of the gospel is good news because a storm is coming. The day of vengeance of our God is coming, but it's a year of favor that just demonstrates and speaks so loudly of the grace of God, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God. It's a year of favor and a day of vengeance. That is the heart of God. He is not willing that any should perish, and so he's keeping the doors open as long as he possibly can. But they will close. But they will close. Trust Jesus. Receive his gift of jubilee. Brothers and sisters, if you have already experienced this great reset in your life, it's our responsibility to carry this good news, to share this good news with others before the doors close, before expiration, before it's too late. We now are the messengers. How lovely on the, on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Let me ask you, how beautiful are your feet? How beautiful are your feet? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take this word. I offer it to you as a sacrifice, as an offering to you, O oh God. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Have a blessed week. I pray as you meditate on these things, the Spirit of God will bring life to them for you. You'll see things differently than you've ever seen them, and it will ignite a fire in your heart. God bless you this week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.